This is NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Callie Jansen. And I'm Gavin Richards. Today's conversation is with Joan Legan, the author of Wild Animals. As you'll soon hear, our conversation with Joan took us to many topics and places we didn't really expect when first preparing for the interview. Admittedly, I had read on Joan's personal biography that she writes in the early AM and has certain unconventional writing traits, and so I was slightly hesitant to see how it would really go. Yet, as we first spoke, I was soon put at ease with her amiable demeanor and warm smile, and when our conversation held the same breadth of issues, from syntax to craft, loyalty to the sentence, the writer is an unconscious medium, as her eclectic and storied past as a writer led us to believe. What persisted in our talk, what sticks with me now, and what seems dear to the heart of Joan's piece is just how ubiquitous the intrusive and frenetic nature of family gatherings can really be. What is most interesting in the story you're about to read is that Joan manages to spare these actions with empathy. Help the reader understand that though these characters may prod and are often more invasive than desired, this act is ultimately an exhibition of interest and care. And what's more impressive, Joan in many of these moments does not sacrifice the importance of communicating underlying issues and instills moral quandaries by asking tough questions about identity and gender and the primal natures many of us strive to hide. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with Legan about her work, and I am so excited for you all to hear about it. We started our conversation with Joan's reading of the beginning of her story, Wild Animals. Wild Animals appears in NER Volume 44, Number 2. A former lawyer, Legan started writing fiction at the age of 40. She published her first book at 53 and chooses to work in the early morning hours. Joan is an MFA graduate of Vermont College, and her forthcoming collection of stories, Displaced Persons, will be released in May of 2024. Wild Animals A baby squirming in her lap. What was she supposed to do with it? With him? Not her baby. Of course not hers. When are you going to settle down, Ruthie? When are you going to find a husband? A man? Any man? She was 30 years old and they couldn't stand it. A fleet of big-eyed relatives looking at her like she was supposed to answer them on the spot. Oh, I got one for us. He's outside. I'll bring him in. You can all inspect. Of course not. The baby was damp. She felt it on her jeans. Her sister's arms outstretched. Give him here. Paula in her skin-tight red jumpsuit and giant hoop earrings cooing kisses on his wet face. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Who's my little boy? Who's my little mush-mush boy? Ruthie pivoted away, swiveled her knees in the dining room chair, blotted her pants with a napkin. Mush-mush. His name was Gus. Paula thought it was cute. Sometimes she called him Gussie. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Clatter of dishes. Ruthie's mother and aunts in the kitchen. Who made this brisket, her mother accused. It's too much. You didn't need to bring this much. What are we, the Tsar's army? Aunt Eleanor replying, a fringe of fury on the edge of her words, where 15 people be, it's not too much for 15. Eleanor never good enough, never measuring up, married to more 25 years, no children, suspicious, and still Ruthie's mother refused to like her. Still Ruthie's grandmother glared at her from a kitchen step stool where she presided like the queen mother, arms crossed, surveying the proceedings, the women at women's work, daughters, daughter-in-law, sometimes a granddaughter, jaw tight, chin up, God help you if you drop the ladle, a spoon, a hot potato. 
dagger eyes from Rose, no sweet flower, entitled to pass judgment on everyone because of what she endured back there with the real Tsar's army, untold atrocities you didn't dare imagine, a miracle she was able to give birth not once but four times, B, Thea, Claire, and the doted-upon baby Nort, Mort. What did they have against Eleanor? Ruthie asked her mother repeatedly. Eleanor's perfectly nice. Gold digger, B would mutter, and Ruthie laughed. Gold digging from us? You don't know, her mother would seethe. Morton, the precious jewel, the gem of the family. Eleanor had gotten her claws into him and turned him around and taken him away to faraway Connecticut, country of the clubby anti-Semites who wouldn't let you live in their neighborhoods. If not for Eleanor, he'd be right there in New York being a pharmacist or a dentist. He'd studied science at City College. Instead, he was a stockbroker who commuted an hour each way by train and ate shrimp cocktail and had a business card that said Mark Epps because Martin Epstein couldn't live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and it was all Eleanor's fault. No point in Ruthie saying what anyone with eyes in their heads would say, which was that uncle, whatever he was calling himself, with his navy and white nautical captain's hat and designer polos and pressed white pants, wanted to pass more than anyone they knew, including the starveling size six Eleanor, who at least kept her name and still tried to please with her own mother's brisket recipe and sweet and sour cabbage, which she'd throw into a dumpster on the Hutchinson River Parkway on her and Mort's way home toward the part of Connecticut where the anti-Semites let them live. It was Mort who'd gone looking for the Connecticut house, Eleanor had told Ruthie during one visit when she couldn't bear another icy stare from Rose, and Mort, who dressed himself up to look like Harry Grant on the cruise in Affair to Remember, to go talk to the thin-lipped thin lady real estate broker. Epps, what kind of name is that? Facts Ruthie later told her mother, who didn't believe her. You're so naive, Ruthie. You believe whatever, whatever anyone tells you. About the failure to produce children, Ruthie didn't even bother to bring that up. It was Mort's problem, not Eleanor's. A doctor had tested them. But tell that to B, to Rose, ha, take your life in your hands. Now, out from the kitchen came the other aunts, timid Claire and peacemaking Thea, wearing Ruthie's mother's aprons and surveying the table that stretched to the living room where the men sat on couches sipping scotch and rye and ignoring the babies crawling over their feet. Paula had disappeared, getting high in the laundry room in the basement. Did Ruthie want to join her? No, thanks. Was she sure? Yes, she was sure. Paula had told her that smoking was the only way she could get through the day, also the only way she could have sex. Barry was clumsy, his hands sweaty paws. The weed could get her to orgasm. Did Ruthie have any idea what it was like to be so turned off by her husband's hands? Though the awful part was that she loved Barry. She just wished he was an Italian motorcyclist in a leather bomber jacket and sunglasses instead of a Jewish math teacher who couldn't wait to get home and cook everyone a big dinner. Joining Paula in the basement was Marjorie, Thea's flaky daughter, and Steve, Claire's useless son, who was supposedly unemployed but made a living dealing. Marjorie's three-year-old sparrow. Really, Ruthie had asked? Yes, really, Marjorie retorted. It was 1980. Did Ruthie want her to name the kid Howard, Charles? was napping on Ruthie's parents' bed. Nobody knew where Marjorie's husband, Dix, was, probably in the backyard with Barry, talking about his chakras. Barry was the only person who could stand to listen to him, which left baby Gus and Marjorie's one-year-old eagle, the family was going full-out avian, to crawl on the living room rug by the feet of Ruthie's father and uncles and the unstoppable Mort, who never stopped talking, regaling his brothers-in-law with tales of Wall Street and motorboating on the sound and the fascinating antics of his fascinating Episcopalian neighbors, in response to which the brothers-in-law were downing cocktails at a furious rate.
A crash in the kitchen. Shattered china, clang of metal, a scream. Ruthie dashed in. A raccoon the size of a kindergartner stood upright at the open gla sliding glass door. Brisket was strewn across linoleum, shards of the white serving powder, like scattered carnations. Who left the back door open like that? shouted Ruthie's mother. Brisket gravy covered her shoes and streaked her skirt where the apron didn't reach. Look at it. If it's out in the daytime, it's rabid. Quiet, Ma. You'll freak the thing out. It'll run in here and bite someone. What, suddenly you're a madam naturalist? Look, it's drooling. Stop it, Ma. Everyone, stay put. They froze, B inches from the sliders, Thea holding a kugel with two oven mitts, Claire gripping a bottle of vinegar, Eleanor with a mixing spoon over a bowl of coleslaw, and last, ramrod straight on the high stool, the statue that was Rose, in a pristine lilac dress, brooch at her neck, her face granite, marble, stone. Vilda Chaya, Rose murmured with disgust at the open door, wild animal. Thank you so much for that reading. That was absolutely delightful, and we're so glad to have you here. Um, what I'm most curious about, first off, at the very beginning of the excerpt you just read, uh, your prose style is very succinct and short. Um, and most sentences are no longer than 10 words, most around five. I think it does a wonderful job of heightening how hectic those family gatherings can be of multiple different generations. But later on in the story, you kind of transition to more fluid and longer sentences. And I'm most curious why that succinct style of writing suited you better at the beginning of the story or the characters. Sure. So like you said, it, um, it, it sort of goes with the, the diction and the tone of the story, the kind of urgency and uh, that type of thing. I also, frankly, really like crisp and economical uh, prose a lot that, interestingly, I thought, well, it, does it not call attention to itself? Well, it does in its own way. But to me, it's the rhythm and the sound. And my approach to story writing is that uh, it all depends on voice. If I'm working on a story and it doesn't have the voice, it's not going to work. And this story immediately came. Most of my stories just start with the first sentence, and this one came with the chaos of the family and the urgency of the voice. Um, and I also, there are two writers I was thinking about that uh, really have, I think, affected this story and have had an effect on me and influence. One is Grace Paley, who wrote uh, a lot of very short pieces, and she also dispensed with things like quotation marks, and she allowed the, the reader to figure out who was speaking, you know, it was a real revelation to first immerse in her work. And the other one is the Israeli writer Edgar Carrot, who writes very short and succinct, immediate stories, puts He's more comic, but only seemingly comic, uh, but puts you right there in the action. And the last thing I'll just say about that is that um, I uh, was putting together a collection of short stories and uh, gave myself an assignment. This is the last story that I wrote for that collection, which will come out next spring. And I gave myself an assignment to write a relatively, for me anyway, short, short story versus a longer one. And I also told myself, because to balance out the other stories, I wanted to write about uh, a relatively younger person. There were a lot of older characters in the other stories. And, um, and I, this, the collection is split between stories set in the States and stories set in Israel. And I said, one more American story with a, a, a let, not a middle-aged character who's divorced. So <laughs> they were, anyway, it was sort of a parameters. And this story came kind of rushing out. And the rushing is part of the tone you pick up. To touch a little bit further on your writing process, which you had already revealed to us to be quite unconventional, 
I'm curious as to how you approach and then ultimately construct a story that has such an ensemble of characters. I actually had this experience reading the story where I almost felt like I was caught in a whirlpool with all the characters circling around me in the current and they would be pulled in and out of the vortex where they would either find brief reprieve from the chaos or simply unfiltered confrontation. And yet, in spite of the scale of your cast of characters, no character feels one-dimensional and each seems to embody a distinct idea, attitude, and personality. And my question for you is, what are the mechanics of writing a story that centers a cast of this scale and how do you maintain balance with that? Right. So I'm glad you picked up on the key words, uh, which weren't intention. They, it's not, it wasn't intent, but it was the reason I thought the story eventually worked, which was the chaos you described and the whirlpool and the whatever we want to call that chaos of family gatherings, right? I mean, and, and one of the things I also appreciate about different kinds of stories is you know, it, it, it's all, all kinds of people encounter this with their families, and it doesn't matter, you know, you, 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 whether it's one ethnic group or another, or no distinctly ethnic group, the chaos of family life is pretty universal. So part of the large ensemble was, in a way, again, it wasn't intentional, and I don't ever, I write fairly uh, unconsciously, if I'm too conscious, because I used to be a lawyer, I just, you know, kind of veto everything right away. Uh, and I have a bit of a perfectionist problem. I don't know, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, let's just say I've got a very active editor in my head. So I have to turn all that off. And so w in the case of th the quote construction tends to come out in revision because I have to let it all just pour out at the time and then I have to see how disorganized or organized a piece may be. So in this case, the uh, ensemble is partly because it was clear to me this was going to be, uh, I could stay uh, not on the surface of the family, but I did, it wasn't a novel where I have to explore every single character. The part of it is the goal is the chaos in a way, but not to confuse who everybody is. So one key to writing a large ensemble was if you, um, if you it's the selective detail that you have to give to, to either, first of all, to make everybody distinct. Uh, like I was thinking of the character Mort, who you heard in the excerpt. There's a few characteristics about Mort. We really don't know that much about him, but we do know how he dresses. And, and the character, the main narrator who filters that or who interprets that, interprets it not just the fact that he's wearing this rakish Yankee sailor hat, but because he wants to pass. He wants to not look Jewish. He wants to look like Cary Grant on an affair to remember, and he wants to live where the anti-Semites in the, that part of Greenwich, Connecticut let him live. So, in a, But you only get that in a few select details and a little bit of bold observation on the part of the main character. So that one of the ways that ensemble types of story can work when it's a short story is two things. You have to give very specific selective details and you have to allow your main character or the character who, whether it's by the you know first person voice or third person voice, to, to overtly identify those things and um, showcase it. She does it also with the, her grandmother Rose. Rose is sitting there upright on a stool um, but she says Rose erect with a, a brooch at her neck, a lilac dress. She's observing this chaotic scene in the kitchen, but Rose, her face is stone like marble. And so that's Ruthie telling us that the main character is telling us that Rose looks like a statue and acts like a statue. So there's two things. You give selective details and you allow it to be somehow 
delivered to the reader through a reliable uh, character narrator or character, and that's that was one way this could work. Um, and uh, I think I think maybe that's maybe I hope that's uh, fully answers the question. Uh, but the the full component of this big ensemble just kind of appeared in the story. I didn't add another story, a uh, character, or take out another character. They were all there, but they were all given a pretty narrow role. <laughs> you know, the babies, the ants, uh, you know, the rigid grandma, that type of thing. Partway through her response, I was really struck by Joan's perception of herself as an unconscious writer. It made me think not only of her larger personal process and from which places she manages to generate her own work, but of larger questions like who invests more into the meaning of fiction, the writer or the reader, and how much writing can be considered a conscious act at all. Is there an argument out there for writing as entirely conscious? I also taught for a very long time on, you know, after I changed careers and I did a lot of teaching in different kinds of settings, you know, universities, continuing education, you know, private workshops and that type of thing. And I've learned that if you tell people to just rely on their association, let you know, just start and not quite the term of free writing, but just start and just don't, just, just let it flow, allow associations to emerge on the page. And to do what I learned from watching and listening to George Saunders talk about the process, you let the sentences guide you. And, and there's a wonderful book uh, by Ron Carlson. Uh, now, of course, I've gotten the name about writing a story. It says their job is to just write the first sentence and the next sentence. And see if your sentences guide you. So what I learned to do very quickly was just trust the page. You put down a sentence, and is there something? is there a second sentence begging to be written after that first sentence? And if there's another one, just follow the sentences and then follow what another writer once called the inventory of the story. Like if you're writing along and you don't know, but your character's standing at a window, well, okay, what does he see out the window? Just let, in other words, let your manuscript speak to you. So the unconscious part is me being engaged with the actual sentences I write. How those sentences get there, where the first one comes from, beats me. And I don't want to know, because if I had to know, uh, then I would be controlling it, and I don't want to control it. I never write from theme or preconceived idea. It doesn't work for me. And there are other writers who write wonderfully that way, or they even work out whole novels in their heads. I can't work out anything in my head. Um, so I just, it, it isn't only my unconscious, I, it's what I've, I let the sentences do the work for me, um, and, and then I follow them. So that's kind of how the unconscious part works. Uh, for me, and uh, and I've, I've been lucky to hear other artists in other disciplines occasionally talk about that. I was I was once up at the a couple times. I was up at the McDowell Colony up near neck of the woods, in New Hampshire, and well, New Hampshire. But um, and I was listening to an, a painter talk about his work, and he was just saying, "Well, I, the painting looked to me like it needed the color red," <laughs> and the the work was full of ideas and narrative and bio, you know autobiographical stuff. And he said, "Well, I didn't actually put it there." I just, I just thought it needed red and a line over here. So it's kind of like that. You engage with your canvas, whether it's a manuscript or a painting, and you let it guide you because it's, it's the uh, palette upon which your unconscious is, is doing its work f for you. So that's how it works for me. Very hard to write a novel that way, I'll tell you, though. <laughs> Very hard.
and something else I'm interested too early on in the piece is how you integrate multiple perspectives into your story and the character Ruthie. At the beginning, you write, when are you going to settle down, Ruthie? When are you going to find a husband, a man, any man? She was 30 years old and they didn't, they couldn't stand it. A fleet of big eyed relatives looking at her like she was supposed to answer them on the spot. Oh, I got one for us. He's outside. I'll bring him in. You can all inspect. And the excerpt uses first and third person point of views as well as inner dialogue in just a few sentences. Um, and at no time, I believe, is the character ever confused or there's no loss of reader comprehension. And I'm curious how how you balance those things and what that that variety of perspective says about the character of Ruthie early on. Right. Well, um, I that that type of writing has been um, a form uh, that's been a form of freedom for me. I'll put it that way. I learned that by reading other writers, um, as I, I mentioned, not just Grace Paley, but other writers who just do that. They'll and and I I'm always uh, so um, excited by it because I view it as a process of becoming unplugged. And in fact, this story for me was a form of being unplugged. I actually told that to uh, the editor at New England Review, and I wrote her that, that um, I don't, I, it took me a long time actually to write from the perspective of women. I was, my earlier work was mostly about men. I had more distance on them. And I think, frankly, I was a little afraid to write about women. They were a little too close to the bone. So it's a form of becoming, this was writing about women, around chaotic family, around a woman who is maybe some, uh, you know, gender fluidity and things like that. And as well as just a voice, like, I'm just going to switch first and third person. It was a form of self-permission as a writer, too. And that's another piece of it that sort of maybe goes along with your question about writing unconsciously, is that if you give yourself more permission as a writer to break some, quote, rules, all kinds of great stuff can come out. So um, it, it was really more letting me, as the writer, letting the, the character speak. And having seen that example, that model in other places, the first person, third person flip around just a little bit, I can't recall exactly now who, who lately I read who did that, but um, once, once you give yourself some permission to, um, to just follow the voice, and it's voice-driven, and the voice dictates that type of passage that you quoted, flip around in first and third, and you know uh, the reader won't be confused if it uh, seems true to the tone, the diction of the story, the tone, the voice, not just the character. But it's a lot of it is giving the writer self, I think, permission to, um, to do that. And, you know, some people are more naturally give themselves permission or they're more naturally inclined to break rules. And some of us, like me, are just more cautious good girls who took a long time to <laughs> decide it was okay to do that. Throughout the piece, you exhibited the animalistic impulses and behaviors of the family which, as I said, were the overtly animalized baby, sparrow and eagle. But then you also had other descriptions that transformed the human into something more primal that included Eleanor's claws, Barry's sweaty paws, and the starveling size six Eleanor. I'm curious uh, about your decision to actually anthropomorphize the real wild animal in the story, the raccoon who stands upright and, as you write, is the size of a kindergartner. Um, I'd like to know how you traverse the relationship between the natural world and the built world and ultimately found overlap and ultimately subverted those two separate universes to deliver something to your reader. Okay, great. Um, actually, uh, that 
the animal aspect of the story was, in my mind, an enormous gift, huge gift, because it was, uh, it, it allowed me to kind of elevate or deepen, whichever you want to call it, complexify the story to be beyond just a, you know, story about a, a chaotic, you know, family with all the usual stuff. And many years ago, uh, when I was, I was actually in an MFA program and listened to a lecture by one of the uh, faculty that talked about the use of metaphor. And it never left me, and it, it appeared many times in my own readings and talking about with students and so forth. The concept of metaphor isn't to decorate a piece. It's not to sort of, you know, prettify it or anything. The metaphor, just you, ha and you also have to let them just arise organically from the material. If you try to plant a metaphor, at least in my experience, into a story to elab to uh, deepen it or enhance it or some way, it very often is going to seem genuinely planted. But if you allow it to emerge organically out of the material, it's 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 going to not only work, it's going to feed me more, feed you more that works in once because you've already established that realm. As you pointed out, there's a number of these that uh, appear throughout the story, and they were not again the word conscious. They were not except they were not consciously put there, except for one big thing. I cannibalized, to use another animal term, the raccoon at the door from one of my own early from one of my own pieces. Uh, it was a, it's an in progress novel that I don't think is going to work. And then the opening scene, there's a raccoon in the back door of a room where a bunch of men are playing poker in the suburbs, and they don't know what to do with this raccoon in the back door. I'm not sure I'll ever make that novel period uh, piece work or that chapter, but I love the raccoon at the back door, and it did the same thing. It was what's this wild animal doing in the suburbs, bothering our poker game? So I did have a raccoon at another door once, and it was I was aware that it meant that there was something primitive and primeval and animal appearing in this very kind of non-animal life. But that said, once uh, it emerged in, the, in this story, once I, I saw that something was going to happen with this baby, and that's when I thought, oh, it's the, it's the raccoon from the other story. We'll bring him over to this neighborhood. Then the other words just emerged on their own. In fact, I didn't even know that I had written that Barry had sweaty paws until the story was in print published. I mean, until I saw the proofs. I knew I wrote it, but I forgot. And it was because my mind was already saying, here we're operating in this world. Because the other piece, and it also, as you might imagine, gave me the title, Wild Animals. And the wild animals gave me not only like this visual metaphor that ran through the stories, and that's another way to deliver the story to a reader. You have visuals that help the reader, not just you know narrative or dialogue. It gave me the visuals to help the story come across. It gave me the title, and it also gave me um, the, the larger meaning because there were wild animals. The people themselves behave wildly and ferally all over the place. Among the wild animals are, okay, the family is being chaotic, but also Rose, her tragic history was at the hands of people you might call wild animals, you know, through the these pogrom and so forth. So the wildness and the out of control humanness was also is a backdrop to the story. But again, it it's like it was allowing a kind of metaphor uh, it, which came it came about because I I knew something was going to happen with this baby and there it was. Okay, conveniently remembered the raccoon, and then it just provided lots of opportunities through the rest of the story. So. You know, the question of how to manage it is when you hear it and see it, use it. Like, oh, look, um, you know, uh, 
the sweaty paws, uh, the sweaty, uh, uh, yeah, his pants were like sweaty paws, and um, the different, the different animalistic words. When I was writing it, I thought, oh, that's another good one. Like again, I was allowing my unconscious to help me. I, I knew that was happening as I was writing the story, and I allowed those in. Um, but if you open up that free associative part of your of your of your narrative brain, uh, then um, then that it will come and it'll serve it'll serve you well. I, there's um, another book by Robert Owen Butler called From Where You Dream. I don't know if, you, or if you've ever read that, but he talks about having written, I don't know, 30 plays and 40 short stories and five novels that were all failed early, uh, failures in early in his career because he was writing from his head. He said not from, and he wasn't saying his heart, he was saying from his dream space. He, he had a whole thing about writing from the dream space, which is related to this. You, to allow a, a channel to, to whatever that part of you that generates story without over-controlling it. That allows a lot of this to emerge. Um, we do really want to know, considering you mentioned your struggle with portraying gender early on in your career, um, do you see this story as a sort of breakthrough or your your forthcoming collection as or as, as like a way of portraying gender more accurately? Um, and the story also seems to have a lot to say about gender inequality and the way we construct it. Um, how do you see that playing a role in the larger, you know, body of... Right. No, thank you. Uh, you're right. The, um, I did not write, uh, and when I was first writing, not only did I not write very many stories, um, the short stories in any case, uh, featuring women, I also didn't write much in first person. Uh, I then wrote a novel, which the main character, there were three characters in one of the main characters is a woman. But then um, when I began to write more stories, all kinds of first-person stories started to come out, many of which involved women. And um, most, of, most of the stories, well, I don't know, I haven't counted up, but this new collection is coming out, has a lot more stories about women, has a lot more first-person stories. And uh, it, to me, it's a, it's, I don't know that it's, you know, I don't know if I would use the term breakthrough, but it's just an evolution. I guess I would use the word evolution. Um, as a way of, again, kind of uh, giving myself more freedom to write different kinds of things, things that um, may cut a little closer to the bone. There is a lot of motherhood stories in, in this collection coming out of the, uh, with children who are fragile, uh, you know, things that are emotionally very charged um, in that regard. So, um, so definitely uh, there's more of that in it currently in my writing, and I'm working also on a novel where the main character is a woman. So um, it's it's been an evolution, I guess I would say. Uh, and I did write earlier. I think I wrote some stories about women, but they weren't as successful. The ones I wrote about men, I I really wrote about really a lot of dysfunctional men, and I really like writing about dysfunctional men, and they're really interesting. <laughs> so they were had more drama to them than the originally the the more tame stories I was writing about women before I let myself write a little more freely. After our initial conversation with Joan ended, we had the opportunity to speak further about her process, during which she gave us some helpful advice on our own creative journeys as aspiring writers. Gavin and I thought it was a pertinent reminder to anyone pursuing or continuing to refine their craft today. As a heads up, we had to switch recording methods midway through, so please excuse the change in audio quality. I just uh, want to say I, I 
I, I love listening to other writers talk about their process. To me, it feels like I hope that it people get to hear that early in their writing because I feel like the process is if at least or if more important than some of the other things people learn, you know, how to write story, how to characters. It's like if you don't know, if you don't hear that everyone thinks they have to do it some other way or they're doing it wrong. And a few minutes later, she elaborated on this point further. Well, another thing I think that's helpful, I don't want to keep you guys, but I just want to say one other thing I remember finding super helpful was to find out that everybody has different paths. If you know yourself, you're much better. Like Toni Morrison said, she was a binge writer. She wrote a lot. She she was a single mother. She had a full-time job as an editor, but she said she'd go to a hotel room and stay there for four days. And that's how she'd write. And then she wouldn't write again for a bunch of days. You know, so people write like they are binge writers. There are some people that have to do a nine to five. You know, they get up and put on a dress and a suit and go to work, you know. And, and for some people that works. And other people would beat themselves up if they didn't do it every day. And others would say, but that doesn't work for them. I'm a night writer. I don't start till like 10 o'clock at night. And I work till the morning. That's why. <laughs> but but it took me a long time. And I think I think it's another helpful thing in your journey as a writer. Just, you know, just uh, don't just try to stay away from the rules and just find for yourself what works for your, you know, both your not just your subject matter, but your process and your and the way you how you want to sit down and write how often and, and just stay away from really hypercritical readers and hypercritical, even if famous, writers. <laughs> this episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by Gavin Richards and Callie Jansen, summer interns at The Review. The NER Out Loud podcast is a production of the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and all other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Visit anyreview.com to read and hear more from NER, as well as to purchase print or digital editions of recent volumes. If you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to NER Out Loud on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to the New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues. From NER Out Loud, I'm Callie Jansen. And I'm Gavin Richards. Thank you for listening.